You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, we come to the end of a, uh, a lengthy season in Sunday school. And we have been really for two years walking through different aspects of our doctrinal standards as the PCA. We began, let me see the dates here, June 13th of 2021 with this series. And we went until the end of April of 2022 going through the Westminster Confession of Faith. There's 33 chapters of, um, of the Westminster Confession. These, this document that is our theological standard in the PCA. And here at Redeemer Church, we'll talk about what this means a little bit more in a few minutes. Uh, But we walked through all 33 chapters, every facet we talked about, uh, maybe not exhaustively, but we hit everything. And I think that was a fruitful season. And then beginning May of last year, and now concluding last week or today, however you want to count it, we began walking through the shorter catechism. The shorter catechism. Again, we're going to do a recap here in a few minutes of what these documents are and the purpose of them. But we come today to finish that whole uh, year, two years, a little more than two years process of going through these documents. And I hope it's been fruitful for you. It's been for me. Um, It's been, uh, I've learned a lot and it's been wonderful to learn together as we walk through these um, important documents and these important scriptural biblical truths. Um, We're going to hit a couple of topics today, but really taking a step back and saying, why is this important? Why do we even have these theological documents? Why are confessions a thing? Um, Why do we think it's important for us at Redeemer to go through this? And we'll have opportunity for questions. If you have particular questions about the catechism or the the confession, we can um, entertain those um, when you think it's most relevant. And um, But we're really kind of stepping back and, and having a a discussion today of why was it important to even go through these things. And I hope you can um, grow in your appreciation for our theological um, documents here. So a couple resources. I've tried hard to uh, limit these throughout, but I'm going to give you a boatload today. And this isn't even all of them. This is just a few of them. Um, as we think about these discussions, on uh, this first topic I'm thinking of is on confessions. Why are confessions important? And there's two books here. First is Carl Truman, The Creedal Imperative. I highly recommend this. Um, if you haven't, it's, it's telling us why we need to have creeds and confessions as a church. And we'll summarize some of these arguments in a few moments. Um, the other one here is this book by J.V. Fesco, The Need for Confessions Today. Uh, a need for creeds today, confessional faith in a faithless age. And uh, thanks to Jay Volk, I have one copy remaining for free um, at the Argyle Inn, uh, our men's Wednesday night Bible study. He gave a, brought a, a bunch of them and we're able to give those out to people. We have one remaining. And so I'm going to pass this around. You can thumb through it. And if you want to keep it, you can keep it. Um, and then, is there one in the church library? That is a great question. You know what? Maybe this should be a church library copy. Oh, all right. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. Pass it around, and if there is a copy in the church library, I'll bring it back in the future for a giveaway. If there's not, we'll put it in the church library. Thank you, John. Appreciate that. Um, yes? Excuse me. Uh, we need one volunteer for the two-year-olds. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Ernie. All right. So... Um, 
All right, JV Fesco. We're going to hit some of these other ones uh, quickly. Commentaries on the confession. Um, if you are looking to understand these even more, to dive in a little bit more deeply, there's a couple document, a couple books here that I highly recommend. The first one is this by Chad Van Dixorn, Confessing the Faith. It, it literally goes section by section and provides a commentary on the entire confession. This is kind of the gold standard today. Um, Chad Van Dixorn is the foremost historian of the Westminster Assembly, and he's writing a history of the Westminster Assembly. Um, where all these um, these documents came from, and so I, I eagerly look forward to that um, that being published in the next few years. Uh, for commentaries on the Shorter Catechism, the best place to go is shortercatechism.com. It'll redirect you now to a website, the Bible Presbyterian Church. It's a small denomination called the Bible Presbyterians. Um, they keep this place online where you can go to every single um, question in the Shorter Catechism, and it links six or eight different commentaries from every question. And it's super useful and really wonderful. Um, any question, what is justification? You can go to that question and you can quickly find six or eight commentaries on it, some shorter, some longer. Um, some are sermons, uh, some are uh, illustrations. They're really, really phenomenal. So shortercatechism.com, highly recommend that. Again, it'll take you to the Bible Presbyterian Church where they keep all this information. Um, and then these two other, these two other books, Again, if you're looking to grow in your understanding of these of, of our of our statement, what we believe, our statement of faith, um, these these this section here, these commentaries in history are really the place to go. This first one is Robert Lethem, the Westminster Assembly, reading its theology in its historical context. So it goes into the history of the assembly a little bit, goes into the history of the church, where they were, where the controversies, what was going on, why they worded some of the things they did. Um, it's, it's very helpful. And then a similar book is J.V. Fesco, The Theology of the Westminster Standards, Historical Context and Theological Insights. Um, uh, Lethem is more historic. This is more theological. They're both doing similar things. Um, but this is probably, Van Dixhorn would be the first one I'd recommend, and then this would probably be the second one, this other Fesco um, book. So highly recommend those. Um, you're welcome. Um, okay, then the final section here is catechesis. We'll talk about the catechism in a minute. But how do we do catechesis? How do we train our children? How do we teach the catechism? I have two resources for you. First is Star Mead, Training Hearts, Teaching Minds. And this is um, really has a, every, takes every question of the Shorter Catechism and has a week's worth of reflections on it for, to help you with family worship and things of that sort. Uh, it's, it's very good. It's very short. So if you have younger kids, it's not going to, I mean, it's, it's literally like two paragraphs from Monday. And it tells you to read other passages of scripture and discuss them and things like that. Um, but it's, it's very good. And I would recommend that. And this next one is similar, the Westminster Shorter Catechism for study classes. This one's more designed for a Sunday school class for children. This is the one that has, um, oh, what's the name of this, this character? Shorty. Shorty, thank you. Um, has Shorty, let me find a good picture I can hold up and show you Shorty. Well, you can kind of see Shorty down there. When it comes through, look for Shorty. Um, this is this is really helpful, and it is, is more of a commentary on the Shorter Catechism and has a lot of good application discussion and questions. So that's a great help for family worship, for your own personal reflection and study as well. Highly recommend those. So those are catechesis for yourself and for your family. Um, questions on these, these resources? There's a lot more, but I tried to keep it 
keep it brief. Um, I've got a whole bookshelf on Westminster studies on my, in my uh, studies, so if you want to come down and check them out, you can. Um, I'll, I'll pause here for questions, comments, um, anything else? Um, it doesn't shortcut having the real deal right here. Um, the Westminster Confession of Faith, or Westminster, yeah, Confession of Faith and Catechisms. This is the great binding the PCA does, the hardcover version. There's lots of different versions. Um, but we have been giving out shorter catechisms, and we have four more. So um, four more. If any of you want one, um, there are four remaining. You can get these. We do have additional copies in and around the library, so um, this isn't all there is. So... Um, and then we started with 200 of those a year ago, a year and a half ago, and now we're down to four. So I think we did pretty well. I'm thankful we have many of these out in hands uh, in the church. Yes? You about Thank you. Yeah, there are, there are great resources that have these. You can get them on your phone. That's what I use. I forget which one, what mine's called. Um, the OPC website has them all right there on a website that's very easy to access. PCA, it's all PDF, so it's hard to get. It's actually a PDF of this book, but it's hard to search and find things. Um, so there are a lot of great digital resources. Thanks for that. It's good. All right. So again, taking a step back, um, what is a confession of faith? Why is this important? And a confession of faith is simply a public statement of doctrine uh, or of faith. The scripture says things like, um, um, stay, stay, um, oh, I'm trying to, to think of a, an example here. It talks about holding fast to the faith. Um, the faith here is not, not talking about my own subjective faith and trust in Jesus, but the faith is talking about the, the theological body of doctrine, that which we, uh, that who God is, what he has done for us. So faith here is, is used in that statement of uh, that, that sense of doctrine. So what is a confession of faith? It's a statement of doctrine that expresses what a church believes scripture teaches. It, that's key. It expresses what a church or an individual, again, I'm an individual one, but what a church believes Scripture teaches. So when we have our confession of faith, <clears throat> Scripture is the ruling rule, the norma normans. Scripture is what norms all of the other norms. Scripture is highest in authority over our confession. It's the ruling rule. But then the confession underneath it, they are the norma normata, the ruled rule. It is a rule, but it is ruled by Scripture. It is subservient to Scripture. And our, and our confession says this explicitly. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, controversies of religion here mean all doctrinal disagreements, um, anything related to the faith. All controversies of religion are to be determined, um, the supreme judge, and all decrees of counsel, opinions of ancient writers, doctrine of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the scripture. So it's definitive here. We can rest in no other final authority except scripture and the Holy Spirit speaking through it. So it is God's word that norms this. So this is not our Bible. This is under our Bible. We believe this says what the Bible says. It summarizes it. But this is not our Bible. A confession of faith is unifying because it allows us to say, yes, we share this in common. We agree on this, and we can unify together when we acknowledge all that we agree upon. And oftentimes people say, oh, this kind of thing is dry, dusty theology, and I hope over the last couple of years you've realized it's not that. Um, it is wonderfully alive because it is biblical and scriptural. 
and it directs our approach to God. It helps us understand who he is. How do we come to him? What he has done for us helps us understand Christian life and even how we do ministry in the church. These documents are so helpful in in, in helping us to understand these things. Um, So that's a confession of faith. What is a catechism? Slightly different but is a tool in the form of question and answer used to teach. So there's all kinds of, catechism isn't necessarily even a religious word uh, or a Christian word or a a churchy word. Um, It's anything that's usually question and answer that's designed to teach something. And here it's question and answer format um, so that you can, it's a question and answer, a call and response sort of a thing. Our shorter catechism, as we've gone through, is 107 questions, and it was designed for instructing children and those new to the faith. I'll take a step back. Uh, Our confession is the Westminster Confession of Faith, and I'm not going to go through all the history of that, where it came to be, but in the 1600s, Parliament in England called for a theological deliberative body to come together and to help the nation figure out its its, um, religious movement forward, how they're going to run the churches in England. And out of that came the Westminster Assembly, and these uh, pastors from all over England were called to help... um, create these documents. And then um, some from Scotland were called as well. They couldn't vote, but they were very important in drafting this. And they put together a lot of things, including the confession of faith and the larger and shorter catechisms. So we have the shorter catechism, 107 questions, the larger catechism, 196 questions. And this was used for instructing adults and seminarians. And the larger catechism is bigger than the shorter and the the confession of faith, um, maybe even combined. It is quite lengthy and quite rich. And we're not ready to go through that here. Uh, Maybe in time, we'll come back. Um, But it it is really rich, and I highly recommend that. There is, yes, there is. We'll come to that in a minute. But yes, most mostly um, it is uh, the, the law of God and the confession of faith has uh, one chapter, maybe three paragraphs or something like that. Um, and then in the catechisms, there are a huge chunk walking us through the law of God. How do we understand the Ten Commandments particularly? So the law of God and Christian living really are the focus of the catechisms and not so much the uh, confession. So there actually, there are distinct um, um, yeah, subject matters discussed in them. That's right. Lord's Prayer as well. That's right. Um, Now, in the PCA, um, the Confession of Faith, the Larger Catechism, and the Shorter Catechism are all, um, they all have, quote, constitutional authority. They all are are theologically binding documents. I was talking not long ago with... um, a, a senior leader in the Free Church of Scotland, which is um, their kind of true Presbyterian, uh, true Presbyterians to the bone, um, and they're uh, with, with wonderful, rich theological heritage. I was talking to him and asking about some different controversies in their denomination and ours and how we kind of think about these things. And I said, so what do y'all do with blah, 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 blah in the larger catechism? How do y'all handle that when people disagree? He goes, what do you mean? I said, well, in our denomination, some people have issues with some of these things in the larger catechism. How do y'all do it? He goes, we just subscribe to the confession. 
We don't subscribe to the catechisms. The catechisms there are helpful tools, but nobody actually subscribes to them and says, I, will be- I-, I believe all these things. In the PCA and American Presbyterianism, um, the catechisms take a confessional stance because we subscribe to them, and they are theologically um, our, our theological documents as well as the confession. So when I say confession, I'm also speaking of the larger and shorter catechisms in our context because they are um, they're stating what the PCA believes. Um, I'll, pause, I'll pause there. Any question there? Not sure I said that in the most clear way possible, but hopefully you get the drift. So why do we have these confessions? Why, why have the Lessons Confession of Faith, the larger catechism, the shorter catechism? And I'm going to make three basic arguments, and the first is that they're biblical. They're biblical. The Bible calls us to do this. A couple places here, um, before we get to the New Testament, the Old Testament, they had their version of these confessions and creeds. They uh, had um, the Shema, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is a statement that was repeated over and over and over and helped um, helped form the, the, the thinking and the imaginations of the Old Testament people of God. And so they had a form of a creed. In the New Testament, we have Paul here in a couple places instructing us to have something of a summary of the faith. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This pattern of sound words. A pattern is something to be repeated, right? So Paul's saying there's a pattern of sound words, whether he's given it to them explicitly or calling them to create one themselves, um, use one that the churches are all, all using. We don't know exactly, but there's a pattern of sound words, of healthy words, of, of pure words that we're to follow, that summarize these things, that help us understand the truth of Christ, Paul speaks again in 2 Thessalonians 2, so then brothers, stand firm and hold to the tradition that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So there's a tradition. Tradition is good. Tradition can be good. This good tradition is passed on orally and by letter. There's a tradition we hold to that in writing the church is bound to, the church affirms and the church um, rejoices in. Um, there's other places in Scripture, this is Truman, his creedal imperative, uh, speaks about this. There's a number of places in Scripture that look like they're proto-creeds and confessions, they're early forms, or maybe they are uh, confessions that were used throughout churches or regional churches. And I have a list of them here. We won't go through them. But you read them and you realize there's something different going on here. These are intentionally designed summary statements for Christians to hold on to and to remember who Christ is, who God is, what he has done for our salvation. So um, it's biblical. We're called to do this, to have a sound pattern of words, to hold to this tradition. And that's what these confessions are. The second one is confessions are wise and they're good. They give us clarity, doctrinal clarity. They make us make a decision. What do we believe about the Bible? What does the Bible teach? It makes us decide. And there's clarity in that acts as a guardian of the church's teaching. For in the PCA, if any PCA church is going outside of this teaching, this, uh, there are ways to call them back and say, no, you can't do that. And so it's providing guardrails, helping us to stay within the lines of what Scripture teaches. And so it's a guardian to make sure we're teaching truth. It itself is a witness to the truth. As you, as you have seen, as we've read through and studied this, it is telling us what is true. It is telling us what scripture, believe, what, what scripture teaches. It is a witness to the truth. 
and it assists in teaching the faith. And that's what we've been using it as primarily the last couple of years, helping us teach. It's wonderful statements, succinct statements that we can, we can say, this is good. This is for you to hold on to. And it helps us teaching. And it helps us, the catechisms, particularly teaching our children, um, teaching those new to the faith. It's wonderfully helpful. Um, adopting publicly, we'll see this in a minute, is in the interest of truth and candor. So uh, it does no good to have a confession of faith that you keep in your back pocket and nobody knows about. You adopt it and it's public and say, look, this is what we believe. So that if we're wrong, tell us. We have no vested interest in being wrong, um, but it also lets people know where we stand, um, who we are, what we believe. And it follows church history since the apostolic age. The Apostles' Creed um, was, there's, there's earlier versions of it than what we have today. The version that we have today came together in three or four hundreds, um, or maybe two hundreds, but uh, there are earlier versions that came along before that. So this has been something that the early church has done, and we continue to do today, having these confessions and statements. Um, all right, we'll stop at one and two. They're biblical, they're wise and good. Um, Comments there? Yep. So, uh, documents of man, they're not perfect. Right. They did their best at that particular time. That's right. At our present time, some 500, 400, some years later. Mm-hmm. But what are some of the big, many changes that occurred in, in a bigger sense just because of further insight and study of God's word and realizing they didn't get it all right the first time? Yeah, so you're saying since the confession. Yeah, right. So there's been, um, our version of the confession that we use has one substantial revision to it. There's a couple minor things, um, but the only substantial revision to it is um, now that we have Christianity in America, 1788, 1789, they amended it to um, no longer have the state as head of the church. Uh, that's what the original confession said. Um, and the state had a responsibility for protecting pure religion and true religion. And in America, just pragmatically, um, we're a pluralistic society. And we began that rather early, um, although it wasn't necessarily that from, from the get-go. But um, rather early, we realized that at the very least, Presbyterians are not in the majority in every state. So at the very least, Presbyterians had to live with other kinds of Christians ruling around them. Um, and so they had to, like Virginia, for instance, some of the uh, foremost on the frontier of the idea of, of free speech came from Presbyterians in Virginia because they were being ruled by uh, Church of England rulers. And the Presbyterians didn't have freedom and liberty to preach and start churches. And so they're trying to make sense of, okay, what does it look like in a world where we can't uh, control the agenda religiously and politically? How do we now live in, a, in that kind of society? And so they did what they did is they changed that to say, no, we actually don't think the state is the head of the church. We think the state should protect all people equally, including the minority, which Presbyterians were at the time, um, continue to be today. But it should protect all people. And so that was a big shift in thinking through church-state relations. And there was a, at the same time, there were other shifts going on broadly in, um, in that era. 
Um, but that's, that's probably the, that's the biggest change. There have been other changes that the PCUSA have made, that other denominations have made, that we haven't made as the PCA. And so we, we go back and say, they did a pretty good job. Now, they didn't ex express everything exhaustively because in their day and age, age the question of sexuality didn't come up uh, in the same way it came, comes up today. So if it was written today, it would be much more exhaustive on sexuality and address our issues head on. Same way it addressed issues head on in the 1600s that for us, like that's not an issue. Um, and so as we read through it, we saw some of this archaic, these archaic issues to us, but they were the issues of the day. So your point, I think, is well taken that it is contextual, but I think they did a wonderful job of getting to the root of so much rich theology. Um, but it's not perfect. Um, that's why we started with whenever this is wrong, we need to change it. Um, this is normed by scripture. Yeah, John. Um, the way that you presented it, it sounds like the changes. 1700s were pragmatic, were just kind of the situational pragmatic changes. And so yeah. that kind of, I, you and I know that that's not completely the case. Right. But um, it, it, it makes it, how, how do we sort through what's, oh, this is pragmatic versus mm -hmm. this, no, this is actually scriptural? Right, right. And, and so I said, even pragmatically, they had to deal with it on this level. If for no other reason, they had to deal with it on the pragmatic level because the church, the state was not um, protecting the true religion, right, according to the, to the Presbyterians. And so they had to change it if purely on a pragmatic level. There was, as you, as you alluded to, there was so much more than that going on. Um, there was a lot of change in thinking about what the state should be doing because until really the American experiment, it was always thought your nation had to be one religion. It was very difficult. Nobody could comprehend that you could have a pluralistic society. And so actually, um, there's, been, there's been a lot of really good work done saying, actually, no, pluralism is a good thing. It actually is a biblical thing um, because we can't bind people's consciences. We can't require somebody to believe in Jesus Christ. Um, and the church is a voluntary society. So there's been other changes that go on. But your question now, okay, now do we doubt everything here in the confession because it's purely pragmatic? I think this is a particular issue um, that does need to be debated, and there's people who are, who are doing a lot of good work in that realm. Um, but I don't think the other ones have the same... Um, um, let's see, practical urgency in the way that the, the government issue does. And in day, today, today's day and age, even more practical urgency than it has in the past. Um, so maybe I'm sidestepping your question, um, and it's a good one, and I think one that, that, you know, if you're interested, need to explore more. So were the divines saying that the Bible teaches that the state has a responsibility to protect the church, or were they saying in their time and place that this is true for us because didn't the government actually, like, the leaders, the leader, take an oath to protect the purity of the church. I mean, there's some mutual oath that they can refer to. We don't have that. Right. Right. So. Yeah, so they, they did believe that the, that the Bible mandated the state had a requirement to only permit the true religion. So there's differences in like, what is this exact relationship to the church? Is it over the church? Is it supporting the church? Are they different tools to the same end? You know, all that. But they did believe that um, the government had an interest to basically punish heresies um, and to only preserve true, the true religion. Um, yeah, so it wasn't just a pragmatic thing. It was, they, that's what they believe scripture taught. And so we would, I would say they're wrong on that. So the Westminster Assembly is not perfect. They're not infallible. Um, and this is a good example. Mm -hmm. um, God never stipulates that this is the right way to go. 
we don't have other, I mean, obviously the Bible is the overarching Jesus. Mm -hmm. Agreement. Mm -hmm. But we are harmed in the Christian church by deviation or differences of interpretation of Scripture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so yeah, there, there are downsides to pluralism, and um, there's, yes, I, I agree with that. However, I do actually think pluralism is, is the biblical way of running um, a society, and I'll, I, don't, I, I want to back away from this. Um, there's, a lot, there's a lot more here um, that we can go into, but I, I want to back away from it a little bit. Yeah, so go to the Noahic Covenant. So this is where God promises to preserve the world until the final judgment. And so it promise, it's a common covenant with all people. It's not a co- covenant with, after the flood with just Noah. It's a covenant with all creatures that God's going to preserve the world. And so we have both believing and non-believers in this covenant that God's promising to preserve all things. And so it's not just that God is promising to keep his people alive till the end. No, he's keeping the whole world alive until the end. And there is particular judgment for evil in this life and all that kind of thing. But it is a covenant with unbelievers and believers that God will preserve the earth till the end. And so both of us are living in a common sphere together. Church is never called to walk away from society that's unbelieving. Early church, we could have heard, Paul could have said that a million times. No, go away and create your own society. No, Christians are living with unbelievers. And God has said, I'm preserving a world through and with unbelievers as well as believers until my judgment on the final day. He's holding judgment in abeyance during this time of of us living with non-believing neighbors. So I'm going to stop there. I don't, I'm not going to go down that road any further. I'm going to get the final word there, and we can talk later. All right, so why have confessions? Why have confessions? Number three, confessions are necessary. Confessions are actually necessary. So they're biblical, they're good and wise, but actually they're necessary. You have to have one. You actually have one whether you believe it or not. And even people who say, oh, no creed but the Bible— I say, I just love Jesus. Let's just worship him. Say, okay, who is Jesus? Say, well, Jesus, he's God and man, and he died on the cross for our sins. Okay, you have a confession. You believe something. Let's put it down in writing. Let's be honest about this. Um, So every Christian and church has one. The question is, is it public and is it biblical? Are you being forthright about this? And is what you believe, is it what scripture teaches? And so we want it to be public so that people can critique it my view of pluralism, like, right, let's critique it. Um, and so is it biblical? We want people to know where we stand, and we, don't, and we want to change where we are wrong. And so it is necessary. Everyone has one. And so if you go to a place that doesn't, you know, most churches have like an about us on their website. Um, I might have a few bullet points and tell you a little bit what they believe. Sometimes you can dig, dig, dig deeper and they have a more robust statement of faith. Most churches don't. And at the end of the day, then how are controversies of religion decided there? Well, okay, they appeal to scripture, but it's really usually the pastor who gets to decide. No, that view is not what we believe here. You can leave if you don't like it. But here what we're saying is, no, this is what we believe from the outset. And it's not the pastor who gets the final say. It's not even the elders who get the final say. We have this document that has the final say because we believe it is biblical. And whenever the leadership errs from this document, you have the right to call us back to it and say, no, you are teaching a gospel that is not the true gospel. You need to come back to our heritage and what we, what we have agreed that the Bible teaches. All right, it's necessary. Anything there? Any comments there? Yeah. I just could make a comment that these 
in talking with friends, you want to go to a lot of Baptist churches because that's Baptists are not denominational churches. Those are the common ones. Mm-hmm. This happens all the time. Right. Someone was asked to be an elder in a church. He's like, but this other guy is preaching something he doesn't agree that doesn't quite seem biblical. Yeah. But then I said, but but you have no foundation by which to say no, this is the wrong interpretation. That's right. And That's so, right. And there was no way to resolve it. Exactly. My position versus yours. Mm-hmm. That's right. And you get into, and then you get a new pastor and he changes everything uh, from the former pastor and everybody's left, you know, scratching their heads. Okay, where are we? Who, what do we believe? And I just find so much comfort here knowing there is consistency. And yes, it can be changed and we want to change it wherever it's wrong, but there's great consistency um, knowing this is what we believe and, and we want to be open and honest about it. So how do we use our confessions? What is the... Um, what do they actually do? What authority do they actually have in our context? So that's the first question, what authority do they have? Officers and licentiates, you know what licentiates are? Um, it's somebody licensed by a Presbytery to preach. Why is that funny? It's just a Presbyterian word. <laughs> licentiates, you're licensed to preach. Presbytery can license people to preach um, and have, have the authority to preach. And they're not ordained. Oftentimes they're on their way to ordained ministry. Um, Anyway, officers, elders, deacons, and then licentiates have to subscribe to the Westminster Standards. And the language is, do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith and the catechisms of this church? And it goes on with more language there. But do you sincerely receive and adopt it? Adopt it because you believe this is biblical. This is what scripture teaches. Do you sincerely do this? So you can know in our denomination, elders, deacons, Licentious. All agree to these documents. Now, it's not required for a membership. This is not required for anybody else other than elders and deacons. But you will know that it is always taught, and the aim is to practice all of these things. Now, in these contexts, you are allowed to have differences. You don't have to agree with every jot and tittle, every single way something's phrased. But if you have a difference, you're required to state them. Whether you're a ruling elder or deacon, you have to state them to the, to the session when you come for examination um, for, for, before election and ordination. Or if you're a teaching elder and licentiate, I'm going to say that word as many times as I can for you. Uh, if you're a teaching elder or licentiate uh, coming before the presbytery, you have to state every place you have a difference with this document. So you have to read through this whole thing and highlight every single place that you disagree or would say something maybe a little bit differently. And you submit these to that court. And then they have to judge whether your difference is merely semantic. Okay. It's different words saying the same thing. No difference at all. You're good. Or your difference is more than semantic, but not out of accord with any fundamental of our system of doctrine. So, yes, there is a difference, but it's not out of accord with something fundamental that's critical here. And um, we could talk about various exceptions people take um, that are judged that way. Um, but then, when you cross the line into number three, these things are out of accord. That's, that is hostile to the system or striking at the vitals of religion. And so number three is not permitted. You cannot have a difference that a presbytery or session judges as number three. If that's the case, you can't be an elder in the PCA or deacon or licentiate. Um, but if it's one or two, if it's merely semantic, or it's more than semantic, but not out of accord, then you're per- it's permitted difference. And now, the court may say, okay, it's permitted difference, but you can't teach it. You can only teach that which accords with our book. Um, that's appropriate. Sometimes They don't always say that, um, but they may say that. 
So um, that's how it's used for, for leadership. Um, and more than that, though, it's a guide for leadership. Like, this, is, this is not simply a checkbox for leaders in the church to check, check off, say, this is cool, we're moving on to other things. This is really a guide. This is really a helpful summary that helps us move in a positive direction. It helps us prioritize what is important. What are those things we need to know about God? Um, it helps us not get sidetracked by things. It, it doesn't mean we only talk about things that are in here, but it helps us to not major on things. If they're not in our confession, they're probably not the most important things to be thinking about and talking about. It guides us in thinking about service and what the church is, how we're to lead, what we're to do. This is a really wonderful guide for leadership. And for all of us, it aids in Christian living. Like we were talking about earlier, the, the Lord's Prayer exposition is wonderful, as we've just been going through. If you need help thinking through, how do I pray? Go back to the confession, or go back to the shorter catechism. Go to the larger catechism, and think through it yourself, and work through this. It's, it's going to help you in your Christian living, going through the law, and understanding what obedience looks like. But going through sections on justification and sanctification, what God has done for us in Christ, this is all designed for us to live lives that honor and glorify God out of gratitude to him for what he has done. So for all of us, it is a real aid for Christian living. And so this last point is what we've been doing, taught to the church as a faithful biblical summary of key doctrines and the Christian life. This is a wonderful, beautiful summary. It's not phrased the way we'd want to phrase everything today. It's written again, almost 500 years ago. There's some language interpretation we have to do. We have to understand what things meant at the time. Um, we have to do some work to get there, but it is a wonderful biblical summary. And despite all that I just said, it is wonderfully accessible. And if, and if some of the old language is too difficult and you don't understand the words, well, there's lots of updated versions that people do unofficially uh, that help you see it in updated English. And it's really, really helpful. So it is taught as a faithful biblical summary. So confessions, um, before we, yeah. yeah for, for further interpretation, I'm sure the pastor would entertain any questions on these questions. That's right. That's right. I would be happy to take any questions. Yes. Um, yeah, and, and, and like this is, we always want to be here for resources, generally speaking, but particularly now, right? What, I mean, so uh, before we get to the next section, which is just summarizing some of the content, what are questions, concerns here? Um, if you don't buy this, you know, tell me your best arguments, um, comments, other questions. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. And and um, the the way our book of church order it defines offenses that are disciplinable. Um, it says anything that's contrary to God's word. So any sin that you commit is a disciplinable offense. Um, particularly, it says as um, interpreted by our catechisms. So in other words, if there's a violation of our catechisms, that is uh, de facto or prima facie evidence that there is an offense there that needs to be repented of, a sin there that needs to be repented of. And the church can begin that discipline process um, just by uh, the language of the larger catechism. So um, I forget where, what you said, and I may have gone down a rabbit trail that was not helpful, but it does summarize for us um, God's law and how to live.
We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, David Van Drunen, um, Mark's what fifth cousin? Is that right? Oh, he just he just stepped out. What's that? Twice, Twice removed. Yes. Um, so, Living in God's Two Kingdoms um, by, by David Van Drunen. And then um, another book, Politics After Christendom, would be the other one I would recommend. Um, thank you. Yes. I appreciate that. Thank you. They're in the church library. They are in the church library. Thank you. Full circle. I love this. I love this. Um, good. Anything else? Two minutes. When those... Yeah, yeah. I don't know exactly who wrote it. Um, I can. I need to. I should know that. I don't know exactly who wrote it, but it was the first General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America. So there were a couple, um, not the PCA, but Presbyterian Church that existed in in America. Um, there were a couple of presbyteries that had been um, uh, in, in operation for 50, 60 years before that. Uh, 1729 was the first presbytery. And then 1789 was when the first general assembly happened. It was when the presbyteries came together and they had the first assembly. And they had to adopt the confession that would bind all of them together. And it was at that first assembly. They didn't um, technically amend anything because they never had anything on the floor. So they adopted basically what we have now today. They adopted the revisions at that point in time. So so America never had the previous editions, and there was a lot of those 60 years. It was really interesting if you watch how the presbyteries operated with the old confession in those 60 years. Many of them almost explicitly said, yeah, we don't worry about the government part here. Um, they knew it had to be changed, and they just explicitly said, yes, we're going to affirm it, but don't worry about the government stuff. We'll figure that out later, and they did in 1789 when they had the first General Assembly. Does that answer your question? Yeah, Yeah. No, they would say it's for all people, all nations. Yep. 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 So they would disagree with our with our forefathers on that. Um, really quickly, oh, was there another another one? Quickly in our last minute, just want to lay out um, this this overall. Um, this gets to the question earlier: What's in these, um, and how are they different? And the 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 confession of faith is like a systematic theology. We go through your major points of theology, starting with Scripture and God, the decrees of God. the The biggest sections are salvation and uh, what is it? The church. So those are the biggest kind of subsections, and and these numbers are the chapter numbers. So there's 33 chapters as a whole. Um, salvation and the church are the most important ones, and, and really at that time, most important ones, or the, the largest ones here, because at the time, those were the hottest, hotly debated topics. Um, these other things uh, are important, but they just weren't as significant at the time. Um, and then the shorter catechism, it's laid out like this. It has our introduction. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to... Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Very good. Y'all are Presbyterians. Um, <laughs> 
scripture. And then the, the big overarching direction after that is what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And so what man is to believe concerning God goes, who is God? Who is Christ? Uh, what did Jesus do? Um, all of these kinds of questions. And then what God, what duty God requires of man and it's obedience to his law. And so, okay, what is the law? We go through the 10 commandments. Um, what God requires us, us of us is to um, attend to the means of grace. And so it goes through the means of grace. What is preaching? What are the sacraments? Um, and then it ends here with the Lord's Prayer. What is prayer under this means of grace section? And so you'll see there, there's a different emphasis here. This is really what do we believe? And then this whole section, what duty God requires of man, is really not here in this same way. Because this is where it goes to the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. It's not there in the same way. And so particularly that that question 39 to the end is a unique contribution to the catechisms over and against the confession. Um, and then the larger catechism would roughly follow the same outline as this. All right, so we've spent two years going through confession and the shorter catechism. We're coming to an end. Um, the next couple weeks, um, Pastor Wright's going to begin a new series on evangelism, and then we're going to intersperse. He and I are going to go back and forth. I'm going to do a couple weeks at a time on human sexuality, um, something that the confession doesn't deal with as exhaustively as we would like in our day and age. So we're going to talk about the PCA and what we've what statements we've adopted on that, and then we'll go back and forth with evangelism and sexuality, and all these really are are um, helping us. Think about how do we engage with the world? How do we engage now with the world outside of us with evangelism and then thinking through ethics and sexuality? Um, and so that's going to probably take us through the end of the year as we deal with those things. Um, but all that TBD. Um, any further questions for th with this? Um, I'm all ears and would love to have more conversations. Um, and maybe we'll have to do a lesson on pluralism sometime, but we'll see. <laughs> all right, let me close this in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word above all. At, that is the standard of all things that teaches us all of these things. But we thank you for those who've gone before us who have helped us summarize and think through the very important issues that are facing us, um, but even those fundamental issues of who you are, what you have done, and how you've called us to yourself. We thank you for this great salvation that is ours, and we pray that we would rejoice in Christ all the more as we know more of him. We pray that you would use these tools in our lives, that we would grow and glorify you. Bless us now as we worship you. In Christ's name, for his sake, amen. Go in peace. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.